Welcome to Leading from Behind, a podcast series about the practice of solution-focused therapy, produced by the Halifax Brief Therapy Center. I'm Barry McClatchy, and this is episode number 21, Working with Mandated Clients in Solution-Focused Therapy. Well, thank you indeed for joining me here again on Leading from Behind. In this episode, we'll be taking a look at how, in solution-focused practice, we work to find ways of helpful collaboration with clients who might be mandated by someone else to attend therapy. And in the closing resource segment of the podcast, I'm going to talk about a number of solution-focused therapy conferences that have been announced for 2014, since it's never too early to start planning for next year's professional development. As well, I'll identify a long-running social work podcast that I learned about this week. It should be of great interest for those of you who are part of the social work profession. So, once again, welcome to Leading from Behind. I hope you'll find this episode useful in building your skills in solution-focused therapy. As a counselor or therapist, have you ever found yourself, quote, working on something, unquote, that a client wasn't interested in working on or simply didn't agree with? I think most of us would say that at some point in our careers, we found ourselves in that exact situation. So you'll know exactly what I mean then when I say that such a scenario rarely works out well. And, more often than not, when we do have this experience, we've likely failed to recognize or find out what's actually important to the client. As well, it's quite possible that we've also failed to acknowledge or appreciate that the client's involvement in therapy was mandated by someone else. So in this episode, we're going to examine how, in solution-focused practice, we can engage with involuntary or mandated clients in a respectful way recognize what might be important to them, and potentially find a place of collaboration towards something that might be useful for clients and whoever mandated them to attend. In doing this, we'll listen to a role-play demonstration as a means of illustrating some of the solution-focused conversations that are possible in this type of situation. So, to begin, let's first define what we mean by a mandated or involuntary client. At the most basic level, this would be someone who has been required by law to attend counseling. Examples of this would include people who are on probation or have committed a criminal offense or perhaps have involvement with a child protection agency. In other instances, this might include someone who's required to seek counseling or treatment regarding substance abuse or other addictions. But of course, there are other clients who might be considered as mandated or involuntary, even though they haven't been required by law to attend counseling. One example would be people who attend at the behest of a spouse, family member, or an employer, or perhaps even a friend. In some cases, it could be someone referred by a doctor who simply attends as a matter of obligation, despite a lack of agreement that such a referral is necessary or desired. And of course, a large and significant subset of this group of mandated clients would be children and adolescents. More often than not, they're mandated by parents or other adults. It's not unusual then for young people to be reluctant participants in counseling or therapy. So it's clear that clients can sometimes be either formally mandated, in the case of a legal obligation, or informally mandated, at the request or even demand of another person. 
But just because someone is mandated to attend, it doesn't always mean that they're against the idea or don't have any desire to engage in counseling or therapy. In those instances, our work with a client is generally no different than someone who has simply decided to attend on their own. So, for the purposes of our discussion, we want to narrow things down even further to describe what we mean by a mandated or involuntary client. In short, we want to look at how, in solution-focused therapy, we would approach our conversations with clients where, one, it's not their idea to attend, and they wouldn't likely do so if they saw themselves as having a viable choice to do otherwise. And two, they don't agree, either in whole or in part, with the mandating source about the reasons for attending or what has to happen for the perceived problem to be resolved. So, having established these parameters, let's look more closely at the solution-focused approach in these circumstances. And, as always, it's important to begin with some foundational beliefs that support our position in solution-focused therapy. First and foremost, the solution-focused practitioner views all clients as having expertise about their own lives. We want to be respectful and curious about what's important to our clients and what they know and value. And, of course, this position extends equally to the mandated client, regardless of age or the subject matter in the conversation. Now, when it comes to mandated clients in particular, the solution-focused therapist takes the perspective that people always have their own good reasons for the positions they take, even when it's not apparent what that good reason might be. As noted in a previous episode, the concept of resistance is not a useful one in solution-focused practice. Seeing a client as being resistant simply isn't helpful, and it offers us no viable way of moving forward in a therapeutic conversation. So, in a solution-focused conversation with a mandated client, we might say that the therapist has two specific aims. First, we want to pay very close attention to what's important to clients and what they might possibly want from the therapeutic conversation. Second, we're going to look for a point of collaboration in what's important to the client that might have some overlap or connection with what might also be important to the referral source. Now, a further element in having solution-focused conversations with mandated clients is the notion of exceptions. Obviously, there are times when clients have very strong disagreement with the referral source and, in some cases, are able to identify very specific exceptions to the described problem. This becomes a rich opportunity then for the solution-focused therapist to invite the client's expertise in describing what's different when these exceptions occur, as well as the difference it makes. In some cases, this focus on exceptions may simply be the sole focus of the conversation with the mandated client rather than anything else. Now, before we take a look at some of the key questions that the solution-focused therapist might consider during a first session with a mandated client, it's important to note that engaging in some problem-free rapport-building talk is always a very good idea at the beginning of the first session. Of course, this is generally a good idea with any client, but perhaps even more so with the mandated client, especially with a child or adolescent. Building rapport and having some kind of positive interaction can often invite the client into the therapeutic conversation in a more comfortable way. So let's look then at some of the key questions the solution-focused therapist might consider during a first session with the mandated client. The first question to consider is focused on what the client wants. In other words, what is the client's best hope from the conversation? 
Or what is it that the client might notice in the days ahead that might tell him that the conversation was a useful one? Now, quite often, the client's responses here may reveal something about their mandated status or their disagreement with the reasons for their attendance. So a few useful questions here would be, whose idea was it for the client to attend? What is the client's understanding of why someone else thinks he needs to attend? What does the client think about this? Now, a further question that can be very useful is to ask why the client is coming now. In some cases, this will reveal that a significant event or last straw has occurred, which resulted in someone else demanding that the client attend the session. Learning about this can be very useful in a number of ways. In particular, though, it can open up some dialogue about pre-session change. Often, we can learn that the mandated client has already begun to make some useful changes. This offers us an opportunity to focus the conversation on how the client has managed to do this and the difference it has made. Now, of course, the client's understanding of the referral source's reasons for the session, or at the very least, the language the client uses to describe this, may require some deconstruction on the part of the solution-focused therapist. So, for example, if the client says that a referral source states that he has a problem with anger, it can be useful to ask the client to talk about what the referral source would say that has led them to this conclusion. Again, this gives us the opportunity to ask the client about their opinion or agreement with these observations. Finally, in the absence of any ideas from the client about how the conversation might be helpful, we can also ask about their understanding of what the referral source might need to notice that would be a sign that attending the session was helpful in some way. In some cases, this allows the client to identify something useful that they might be up for. Or, at the very least, the client might be able to identify an exception when this sign has already occurred. Again, this would allow the therapist to spend some time being curious about the exception, how the client has managed to do this, and, again, the difference it has made. So at this point, let's look at some examples of these questions in practice. We'll do this by looking at a role-play demonstration. Keep in mind that this is a very simple and basic example of a conversation with a mandated client, rather than what sometimes would occur in a real-life session. Now, the client here is a middle-aged man named Joseph. There is no information prior to the session that he might be mandated to attend. His status as a mandated client will only be revealed, as it often is, within the conversation itself. So I begin the session by simply asking Joseph about his best hope from our conversation. Um, my best hope? Well, nothing really. I, I don't you know, think I have a problem, so I, I'm not even sure if I should really be here. Since it's clear that Joseph doesn't think he needs to be in the session, my task is to discover whose idea it was for him to be there. And secondly, his understanding of why someone else thought it was necessary. Okay, and so Joseph, whose idea was it for you to come here today? Well, it's my wife's idea. And what's your understanding then of why your wife thought it might be a good idea for you to come here today? Well, you know, she, she goes on about my drinking. Eh? She thinks I have a drinking problem, but, you know, she's just overly sensitive. Like, she's just, you know, just, I don't know, she's, she worries a lot. So Joseph identifies that his wife is concerned about his drinking, but he's pretty clear that he doesn't agree. As a result, it makes me curious about what his wife sees that informs her position. 
Hopefully, this will enable me to find out perhaps more about whether there's any level of agreement on Joseph's part with her concern. So she has she has some concerns about your drinking, and uh, from from your perspective, then Joseph, uh, what is it that you would say she sees that gives her the idea that you have some kind of problem with drinking? Well, uh, uh, I do like to have drinks on the weekend. You know, I I don't usually drink during during the week at all, so you know, I don't see it as a problem. But I like to have some beer on the weekend, and she thinks uh, the drinking on the weekend's a problem. Joseph's response tells us that his wife is concerned about his drinking on the weekends, but it remains unclear about exactly how his drinking on the weekend is a problem. And how so, Joseph? If, if she was here right now and I asked her how your drinking on the weekend was a problem, what do you imagine she might say? Uh, she thinks like my health is at risk, that maybe I'm going to, you know, either in a you know, in the near future or not so distant future, I'm going to suffer some health problems, like some my liver or something like that. I don't know. So Joseph reveals that his wife is concerned about the impact of his drinking on his health. So I want to find out whether he has any agreement with this opinion. And what do you think about that? Well, you know, like I can't deny that my gut's getting bigger, right? You know, you drink beer, your gut's going to get bit bigger. But, you know, it's not like I'm sitting down, like, drinking the whole weekend away, right? Like I'm doing some work around the house and, you know, I have a few beers while I'm doing that. Then, you know, after that, I like to relax and get a few more beers in, right? Based on Joseph's response, it's evident that while he's not in disagreement with his wife's concerns, there's certainly nothing there that suggests that there might be a place of collaboration for us. So I try to learn more about whether his spouse has any other specific concerns about his drinking. So she has some concerns about your health, and and you kind of acknowledge that. Um, Are there any other ways that she sees your drinking on the weekend as being a problem? Well, you know, we've got a teenage daughter, eh? and you know the way teenagers are, like they kind of just call you out the blue and expect you to be available so she might call to get a drive and of course I'm responsible so if I've had some drinks I'm not going to go pick her up and I can't drive so I tell her I can't go do it so you know one of her you know she wants one of us go get the daughter and if I'm drinking I'm not available so she gets upset about that eh? So Joseph reveals a further concern on his wife's part and I decide to confirm his acknowledgement of this as a valid concern. So you have some agreement that with her in that she gets upset because you're not available to, to, to drive. Is, is, is that right? Oh, that's true. And, you know, it does work out that way. Like sometimes, you know, we want our daughter to call us if she's stuck and, you know, I can't go get her because, you know, if I've had a few beers, I'm not going to drive. Right? I, I can't risk losing my license. Again, however, Joseph acknowledges his wife's concern, but also identifies his good reasons for holding to his own position. So I decide to see if there's anything else that comprises his wife's concerns about his drinking that might be a place of common ground. And any other ways, Joseph, that your wife sees your drinking on the weekends as as being a problem of some kind? No, I think that's it. It's, you know, the health and it's my daughter. Like, you know, it's not like I'm one of these nasty drunks, you know. Like, in fact, I'm actually kind of fun to be around when I'm uh, drinking, you know. Uh, And look, there's times when she has a few beers too, right? But she says she's always the one who has to pick up her daughter on errands. So she kind of claims she's responsible with her drinking. I'm irresponsible, you know. 
Now, at this point, I decide to use a scaling question to get a sense of how Joseph views the issue of his drinking on the weekend. Based on the conversation so far, I remain curious about the degree to which he might acknowledge a problem. His response might create some room for talking about how he has come to this position, or, at the very least, whether there's room for any change that he might be interested in. So, Joseph, let's say then on a scale of 1 to 10, let's say where, where 10 means that you're managing your use of alcohol on the weekends in the best way possible, and uh, it's not a concern for you uh, at all, and let's say 1 means the opposite. Where would you put things on, on that scale? Mm, I'd probably say like a, a seven. Before exploring Joseph's seven, I decide to ask a relationship scaling question. In other words, I'm curious about his perception of where his wife would rate her concerns about his weekend drinking. And if your wife was here right now, where do you think she would put things on that scale? Uh, she'd put it lower, like maybe a three or a four, I'd say. Now that the gap in their two positions has been identified, there's an opportunity for me to ask Joseph for more detail about his place on the scale. And so what is it that you see that puts it at a seven and not lower? Well, it's not like I'm like falling down drunk all weekend and, uh, you know, it's not like I'm never available on the weekends. So Joseph has now identified an exception. He says that it's not like he's never available on the weekends. I ask him then about what's different about the times when he is available on the weekends. Well, if I know there's something planned, like if I've got to go out later in the evening or we've made plans to go out, say on Saturday, then I'm going to wait. I'm not going to have a beer until the evening. Now, to amplify this exception further, I decide to ask Joseph how he manages to make these exceptions happen. And so how do you manage to do that? Well, it's not hard, really. It's easy. Like, you know, if I put my mind to it and I know I, I'm not going to drink, then I, I make that decision. I, and I, it's not like I have to drink during the day. You know, I don't drink during the week. Even though we have yet to find a place of collaboration in our conversation, the focus on the exception has still enabled Joseph to hear the sound of his own voice and expertise. Now, in keeping with this line of inquiry, I decide to ask Joseph for more of his expertise in what has him at a 7 on the scale of 1 to 10. So, Joseph, what else has you at this 7 that maybe your wife doesn't see yet? Well, I, last Sunday I, I didn't have a drink at all. Like, Really? And how come? Well, you know, we had me and my wife on Saturday night, we had this uh, big argument because uh, my daughter was over at a friend's place till about midnight and she needed a ride. Like there was a problem with where she's staying. She got in a fight with a friend and needed to get out of there. Uh, my wife was really cold. You know, she's thinner and gets cold easier and didn't feel like driving. But I already had a few beers, so I couldn't go pick her up. So she got pretty angry at me that she was the one that had to go. Uh, and, you know, sh she was too cold and too uncomfortable. She's actually kind of sick, I think. And she couldn't go get her. I couldn't go because I drinks. So we had to pay for a cab. And, you know, we did, money's not easy right now. So the, uh, so the next day she was she was over the top with me. She was freaked and she just told me she had enough. And if I didn't go do something about my drink and go see someone, our marriage would be over. 
Without even being asked, Joseph answers two key questions that are useful in first sessions in solution-focused therapy. He identifies some pre-session change. He didn't have a drink at all last Sunday. And secondly, he answers the why now question about coming to therapy. His wife has indicated that their marriage may well be in jeopardy. As well, Joseph has also identified his good reasons for attending the session and perhaps a place for collaboration where the session may be useful to him. Your, your marriage, then, is, is very important to you? Oh, absolutely. Like, I, I don't want our marriage to end. Uh, that is why I come here, because clearly uh, I'm, uh, it's not worth losing my marriage. Now, before going further, I decide to follow up on the pre-session change. In other words, Joseph's decision not to drink at all last Sunday. And what difference did it make, Joseph, to, to not have a drink last Sunday? Well, not much, uh, really. She, she was still pretty pissed off on Sunday, and things really didn't, you know, she stayed kind of pissed off until I told her I made this appointment, and then that kind of started to de-thaw, you know, to thaw out some. At this point, then, I know that Joseph's marriage is important to him, at the very least to the extent that he was willing to attend the appointment. And in my own clinical judgment, in this moment, and in this final clip, I decide to ask a question that relates back to the question of how attending this appointment might be useful. So, Joseph, then, what do you think um, might even be a small sign to your wife that, that somehow coming here today was helpful well i guess you know like you know my daughter does tend to go out friday nights or saturdays and uh there's a good chance she needs to be picked up either or both of those nights so i suppose if i kind of really didn't drink or just had like one or something so that i could be the one to go out and pick her up and she kind of knew i was doing it and that's why i was doing it i think that would be a pretty good sign to her so Joseph, who obviously does not view himself as having a drinking problem, does identify something that he knows that his wife might need to see that would tell her that some kind of progress is being made. From here, there's a number of possibilities for the conversation to focus on what's important to Joseph, which at the same time, and perhaps in a different way, is also important to his spouse. For example, I could ask a further scaling question here about Joseph's confidence that he could make himself more available in the weekend evenings in the way he described. And amplifying this by asking how such actions would make a difference to his relationship with his wife. Now, I certainly realize that it would be easy for someone with a problem-focused perspective, or perhaps someone with expertise in substance abuse, to take a different view of this example of a solution-focused conversation with a mandated client. But the point to be made here is that in solution-focused practice, we're concerned with focusing on what's important to our clients and finding a place of collaboration towards something that they might find useful. It's certainly possible, of course, that Joseph might not be able to make the changes that his spouse wants. But from a therapeutic perspective, Joseph and I, at the very least, have created a collaborative relationship that would make it more likely for him to engage if or when his position on the problem were to change. At the same time, what has already begun in this conversation can lead to Joseph doing more of what works in being more available, a byproduct of which would be a reduction in his drinking. Both of these, of course, are also important to his spouse.
In the resource segment of this week's podcast, I'd like to mention several solution-focused conferences scheduled for 2014. This seems like an appropriate time to do so, since it can take time, and of course money, to plan one's professional development activities. As well, conferences on solution-focused practice are an excellent way of building your knowledge and skills in the approach. In addition to attending a variety of workshops that can help in that regard, conferences are an excellent way to engage with people who speak the same solution-focused language, something that's often difficult to find in our own workplaces. So the first conference of note is the annual one held by the United Kingdom Association for Solution-Focused Practice. This one will be held in Liverpool, England on June 12th and 13th, 2014. The theme of the conference is Solution-Focused Works, Registration for the conference is now open. For more information, simply go to ukasfp.org and follow the link for the conference. Now, the next two conferences are scheduled for later in 2014, so there isn't any information yet about registration, but we'll be sure to let you know as it becomes available. First, you should be aware that the next conference for the European Brief Therapy Association will be held in the Netherlands from September 26th to the 29th, 2014. To keep an eye on registration, you can visit ebta.nu. Secondly, the Solution Focus Brief Therapy Association in North America recently ended a successful conference in Toronto, Canada. It was announced there that the 2014 event will be held next November in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Further details about the conference will eventually be available at sfbta.org. Now, our final resource this week is a very well-established podcast that would be of significant interest to social workers. Hosted by Jonathan Singer, an assistant professor in social work at Temple University and an experienced clinical practitioner, the Social Work Podcast is about to complete its seventh year of production. With a wide array of topics relating to clinical practice and issues of interest to social workers around the world, the Social Work Podcast is a terrific resource for both new and experienced social workers. To listen to the Social Work Podcast, visit socialworkpodcast.blogspot.com. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes as well as the Stitcher radio app. Now, to find a link to the Social Work Podcast or any of the conferences mentioned, you can see them on the podcast page of the Halifax Brief Therapy Center's website at hbtc.ca. So we've reached the end of this episode, and I'd like to thank you again for joining me. If you have any questions or comments about this episode or the Leading From Behind podcast in general, please feel free to do so by sending an email to feedback at hbtc.ca or by leaving your comment or question on the podcast page of the website at hbtc.ca. As a reminder, new episodes of Leading From Behind are available twice a month. For a free subscription to the podcast, you can click on the link to the iTunes store on the podcast page of our website, or you can find us directly in the iTunes store in the training subsection of the education category. In closing, my thanks to my colleague, Richard Hamilton, for his assistance with our roleplay demonstration. And as always, my thanks to Dano at danosongs.com, provider of royalty-free music used under a Creative Commons license. So you've been listening to Leading From Behind, episode number 21. I'm Barry McClatchy from the Halifax Brief Therapy Center. I hope you'll join me again.